I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we look at a blockbuster Supreme Court term and the exciting cases on the docket and that may be added to the docket soon. The Supreme Court will hear arguments ranging from partisan redistricting to President Trump's travel ban to important cases involving the future of free speech. And joining us to discuss these important questions are two of America's leading scholars of constitutional law, um, uh, National Constitution Center friends, and our We the People dream team. Michael Dorff is the Robert S. Stevens Professor of Law at Cornell Law School. Ilya Shapiro is Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Michael, Ilya, thank you so much for joining. Good to be here as always. Good to be here, especially during Constitution Week. And uh, we did put out the new issue of the Supreme Court Review and had our annual Constitution Day conference at Cato just yesterday, Monday. So uh, I'm raring to go. Thank you so much for reminding us to say happy 230th birthday, U.S. Constitution. Uh, we did that last week, and we had such an exciting Constitution Day here at the Constitution Center. Yesterday, I want We the People listeners to check out the videos and audio online ranging from talks by Ken Burns and David Rubenstein to an inspiring address by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. It was a great day for the Constitution. All right, let us jump right into the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Uh, this is one of the most hotly contested First Amendment cases of the term. Mike, can you tell us the facts about this baker in Colorado who has declined to bake a cake for the wedding of Charlie Craig and David Mullins and also the factual disputes about exactly what kind of cake he refused to bake? Sure. So Jack Phillips is the owner, um, or as it's unclear from the record, he might be the co-owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop, uh, which is a cake shop in Colorado. Um, Charlie Craig and David Mullins um, approached him about baking a cake for their uh, wedding. It, technically, it wasn't a wedding because uh, Colorado at the time didn't yet have same-sex marriage, but it was a wedding ceremony that would not officially count yet. Uh, but in any event, um, he declined to bake the cake. He said he doesn't create wedding cakes for same-sex weddings because it's contrary to his uh, beliefs. Um, it's a little unclear exactly what the wedding cake would have entailed, but Phillips said that he did tell them he'd be happy to uh, sell them other baked goods. Uh, the Craig and Mullins then complained to the Colorado authorities that this was discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation in violation of the Colorado uh, public accommodations law. Uh, the case went through the Colorado process and the Colorado Supreme Court uh, eventually ruled in favor of Craig and Mullins um, and against Masterpiece Cake Shop. Uh, rejecting a First Amendment defense. Now, the First Amendment defense uh, has two components. One, freedom of speech, uh, that this was a cake that expressed a view contrary to uh, his own view. And the second, free exercise of religion, as um, many of our listeners probably know, under a Supreme Court decision uh, uh, from 1990, the free exercise clause of the federal constitution doesn't provide people with a right to exceptions from generally applicable laws like an anti-discrimination uh, law. But the argument that was made uh, by Phillips in the case was that the state, uh, through its patchwork of enforcement uh, and exceptions and so forth, actually did not have a generally applicable or neutral law that this was uh, discriminating against him on the basis of religion. Uh, he, when the Colorado Supreme Court rejected both of those arguments, finding that, uh, there was no violation of his free speech or free exercise rights, uh, he brought the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, where it is now pending on both of those claims. Thank you so much for that great summary, Ilya. Uh, describe, of course, why you feel that it is coerced speech to make him bake the cake, but also really dig into the complexities of the case. And I gather there's a factual dispute about what exactly Philip said. He told the man, I'll make you birthday cakes, shower cakes, sell you cookies and brownies. I just don't make cakes 
for same-sex weddings, and it seems that there wasn't a discussion about whether the, he would sell them a generic cake. He just didn't want to bake them a cake specially for his wedding. Is that relevant to the core speech claim, and, and what do you see the hard issues here being? Yeah, there are a lot of ways to slice this cake shop case, if you will. <laughs> nice. Um, and and as you as you noted, uh, I do have a position on it. We Cato filed a brief supporting Masterpiece Cake Shop on the freedom of expression grounds, uh, and specifically the uh, uh, age-old uh, Woolard versus uh, uh, Maynard versus Woolley case out of New Hampshire, the live free or die license plate, where the Supreme Court said that. Uh, people can't be uh, forced to 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 speak uh, whatever um, whatever message. Uh, now, uh, I don't think the factual disputes to address your your specific question are are really going to matter. I think before the the court grants cert in any given case, the clerks have done a very deep dive in, in, into things that could cause uh, you know, extraneous things that could cause problems uh, to reaching the actual legal merits. So they they've had their choice of wedding vendor. Uh, cases over the years. And the fact that this was relisted many, many times and then granted, I think indicates that whatever the factual disputes may be, that shouldn't affect uh, the ruling one way or another. I, you know, my, my recollection, my understanding of the facts is that uh, Jack Phillips has had many uh, gay customers, uh, just like other wedding vendor cases that we've heard about. Arlene's Flowers, the florist in Washington, who's trying to get her case consolidated with this one, by the way, or earlier than New Mexico wedding photographer. Anyway, all, all of these, uh, you know, the, this line of, of cases. And the first issue is precisely whether cake baking or custom cake baking or artisanal cake baking uh, is a sort of expression or expressive activity that's protected by the speech clause. Because if it's not, then that falls away and it's a much uh, tougher road to hoe um, here um, uh, because, as uh, as Mike uh, discussed, uh, Colorado does not have a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, and you are not entitled constitutionally to an exemption from a generally applicable law. Uh, now, you know, if if it comes to the religious argument, as Mike also described, the, there's kind of a uh, a checkered history of uh, apparently the, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission did not enforce the law, the same law, against atheists who declined to bake a cake for uh, traditionalist Christians. Maybe there are some other similar fact patterns. Uh, on the other hand, Jack Phillips is uh, in the record is, is showing that he doesn't want to bake cakes for Halloween or alcohol-themed, I guess, for bachelor parties or, or, or anything like this. There's, there's some resonance to the Hobby Lobby case in that regard. So he's, he's showing that he's not, and he does serve gay people. He just doesn't want to work the, uh, the gay wedding. So uh, again, as I said, there, there are literally different ways to slice it. Is, it. is it about expressive businesses and can they be compelled to speak? Is it, does, does the status of being gay versus working the gay event, does that matter at all? Uh, is this a true public accommodation? Uh, Probably in the law, that's not going to be as significant, but the traditional definition of public, public accommodation, and certainly this was the case in the Jim Crow era, are restaurants and hotels. And if, say, black people during that time weren't being served there, uh, then they would go hungry or had no place to stay for miles around, uh, not to mention the state-supported monopoly, whereas here there are plenty of uh, bakers that would be happy uh, to accommodate. So a lot of thorny issues there. Um, I, you know, I, I ultimately think that, uh, I mean, I suppose if the court determines that uh, baking or artisanal baking is not artistic, uh, almost certainly the, uh, the, the, the baker will lose. Uh, there could be an equal protection issue, as I said, in terms of the enforcement uh, of, uh, of this particular law by, by Colorado. Um, but uh, I think all eyes are going to be on Justice Kennedy uh, and that last week of June, especially when perhaps he will announce an opinion in the case that uh, supports both his proclivities for gay rights and the First Amendment and pleases no one but the Cato Institute. Uh, and uh, uh, there's and then no retires and announces his retirement <laughs> immediately after that. It would be a dramatic uh, decision indeed. Uh, Mike, there's no one better to uh, channel Justice Kennedy than, than you for whom uh, you sent your clerk for him. Uh, help us put us inside his head and, and how might he analyze the competing arguments, which precedent might pull in which directions and, and how much you think he will ultimately rule? Well, let me just say that um, I, I don't uh, have any pipeline to Justice Kennedy's brain better than anybody else. But I will say that I that Ilya is right, that Justice Kennedy does care deeply both about equality based on sexual orientation 
and about freedom of speech, and that this case does, at least on its surface, appear to present a uh, genuine dispute between those two values. So I think it it will be a hard case for him, as I think it ought to be for most people. And let me just see if I can sort of uh, give a sense of how of why he might find it a, a hard case by explaining why uh, many of us might think find it a hard case. So. Uh, on the one hand, there certainly is a, you know, a very powerful allure to the principle that people have a right to resist compelled speech, right? If you think about all of the great rhetoric in the constitutional canon, there's really almost nothing on a par with uh, Justice Jackson's statement in uh, West Virginia School Board against uh, Barnett, right? If, we have, if there is one fixed star in our constitutional constellation is that no official, higher petty may prescribe what is orthodox in matters of religion or opinion. I'm paraphrasing, but it's rough. That's roughly what he, what he says, right? And then Woolley against Maynard, the New Hampshire license plate case uh, to which Ilya referred, right? These are cases that say government can't compel you to take a position you don't want to take. Now that's all true, but I think that the case has a little bit of a different valence when instead of the government prescribing uh, speech, the obligation to uh, participate in what you believe is a message comes from a requirement to comply with a law about serving other people. Uh, and the reason why I think that this is potentially problematic is because of the difficulty of drawing a line between expressive activity and non-expressive activity. So uh, as Ilya noted, we've also had cases by wedding photographers, by florists, um, uh, here is a cake. All of those seem like they're, uh, you know, expressive activities, but think about, um, you know, other things, other kinds of services that people provide for weddings or for anything else, right? Um, uh, being a bartender is a notoriously social activity. Does someone get to say, I don't want to participate in a same sex wedding because as a bartender, because I'll have to talk to people and sort of smile and, uh, suggest that I approve of this. Uh, this is the 100th anniversary of Marcel Duchamp's great uh, work of art, Fountain, which um, you may recall uh, was simply an off-the-rack urinal that uh, Duchamp turned upside down and scribbled some uh, letters on and called it a work of art. Uh, at the time, it was dismissed. Since then, we've experienced Andy Warhol uh, and other conceptual artists uh, that have led us to think that almost anything can be artistic and thus a form of expression. And so the difficulty, I think, if Masterpiece Cake Shop wants to win this case, will be in articulating a limiting principle that doesn't allow just about anybody to claim an exemption, not only from anti-discrimination law, but from virtually any law. Think about the law that was invalidated in Lochner against New York, a law that applied to bakeries, right? Suppose the owner of the, the bakery, Mr. Lochner, uh, or someone else had said, hey, I don't, um, I don't want to comply with the uh, minimum wage or maximum hour legislation because I regard my employees as involved in a kind of performance art with me. Um, and do I, does, does he get an exemption? So, so you need to articulate some principle and one that encompasses bakers, right? Uh, I think is going to be a little tricky to do once we recognize that it's not just for bakers who want, who don't want to say, you know, I support same sex marriage on the cake, but don't want to have, you know, uh, a specifically wedding cake at all. Great. Thank you very much for that. You know, Ilya, please respond to the hard cases that Mike has posed. And indeed there was a barbecue shop in the 1960s that refused to serve African-Americans um, uh, because they didn't like them. And would they be able to claim that their pork was a form of artistic expression under a broad theory? And, and also tell us about the relevance of this fair case where Chief Justice Roberts got a unanimous court for the proposition that the military could be required to be allowed to recruit on campus because no one would impute the military's policies against gays and lesbians to the college faculty. Might, might uh, Justice Kennedy or even a majority of the court view the cakes in a similar light? Well, uh, I, I, you know, courts draw uh, difficult lines all the time. Uh, and, you know, there are some, some professions that I think would be easy to, to draw 
uh, as not having free speech protection, say a limo driver uh, for a wedding or or a caterer. Uh, that's you know where Ollie Barbecue comes in. It's not like some special custom uh, style of pig that you're branding in some way to celebrate some event. This is you know off the rack sort of stuff. Uh, you know that's another dividing line: off the rack versus custom. Um, that, that that's potential uh, a potential line uh, to, uh, to be drawn. The point is, uh, you know, at, at which point is is speech. Uh, 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 compulsive uh, or, or, or compelled uh, versus just uh, being pure activity. Um, you know, that's that's a tough line for courts to draw, certainly, but uh, they don't necessarily have to. I mean, I, I suppose you could come up with some profession. The bartender, gosh, I mean, if a bartender is allowed to be mute and just take orders, that's 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 one thing. But uh, you know, that's. At a certain point, uh, you know, the, all the all the lines are can be hard, but uh, uh, you know, pick whatever your most expressive one is. Say a, a wedding singer, or a um, or a photographer, indeed, or a painter, or you know, someone who is you know even more a clearer artist than 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 a baker artisan. Um, so that's just you know, uh, yes, it's a difficult line to draw, and it could be drawn in different ways, but that's. Uh, a, a different question than than whether that's a, a plausible way of uh, being able to draw these things. Uh, as for fair, fair, I've always thought of as kind of a an unusual case. And indeed, when there's national security involved and federal funding involved, for that matter, uh, of all of these institutions that take research funds in different ways, I think those have to work differently than a state law uh, acting on on state grounds and and effectively. I mean, here it says Colorado Civil Rights Commission, but a lot of these wedding vendor cases, there's there's no government party involved. It's the the couple who's been uh, denied their cake, or um, you know something like that, or the ACLU in in their stead. But the, there's not necessarily government involvement. So I think um, the the court, one way or another, can can distinguish fair um, uh, uh, if it wants to. Uh, many thanks for that. Well, let us turn to the travel ban case, which will be heard on. Tuesday, October 10th, the second day of the term. This is the second tour of the travel ban case before the court. Mike, tell us about uh, what's going on there. Uh, might the court rule that the case is uh, moot uh, because the waiting period has expired? And what do we expect the constitutional dispute to involve? Sure. So this is the first occasion in which the court is going to actually uh, tackle the merits if it doesn't find that the case is moot. Uh, the case has been up to the court uh, for uh, in, in the posture of uh, stay motions a couple of times already. And uh, as it was a busy recall, summer for this case specifically. Yes. As people recall, in in June, the court granted cert. Um, and partially granted the government's request for lifting of the injunction against the enforcement of the travel ban insofar as it applied to people who lacked a, quote, bona fide relationship with a person or entity in the United States. There then ensued two rounds of litigation over what exactly counts as a person or entity uh, in the United States with a bona fide relationship in which once again the court split the baby on that. The court uh, rejected or I should say uh, didn't disturb the lower court's rejection of the um, the administration's uh, determination with respect to individuals said that uh, as far as relatives are concerned, the government had defined that term too narrowly. So grandparents count, uh, cousins count, et cetera, but then allowed the government to enforce its definition with respect to entities so that people who had been uh, assured that they were admitted as refugees um, and had a letter that didn't necessarily count as a bona fide relationship. So the court has sent, uh, I, I think we would say, I could say mixed signals about where they are on this case, um, but they haven't addressed it in a plenary fashion. Uh, There are essentially three sorts of issues before the court uh, there. The first is, as you say, one of mootness. After all, uh, the 90-day travel ban uh, with respect to particular countries and the 120-day travel ban with respect to refugees uh, are either uh, in the process of expiring or certainly will have expired within uh, a week or two after the, the court hears oral argument. And so the question is, well, what's left of, of the case? The 
government has tried to keep the case alive, and they've done so initially by continually sort of resetting the start date of those 90 days and 120 days. And I think we can expect uh, some vigorous questioning from at least some of the justices about why the government keeps needing more time to conduct this review. After all, the ostensible reason for the temporary bans was so the government could review screening procedures. And I imagine that one or more justices will ask the uh, Jeff Wall when he gets up to represent the, the government, hey, how's the screening review coming along? Um, haven't you completed it by now? So that's the first question with respect to mootness. Then there is a statutory interpretation question. The Ninth Circuit, um, in uh, invalidating the travel ban, said it wasn't authorized uh, because the statute that gives the president the power to uh, restrict immigration of individuals or groups um, requires that he give a reason. He didn't give a reason. It's a question of whether he has to give a reason. There's also a question that's been raised by some others about whether the government really is complying with the statute because the statute requires a kind of finding that entry would be deleterious to the interest of the United States. And the president hasn't made such a finding. He's simply said, well, we don't know whether they'd be, uh, it would be safe to admit these people. And then finally, I think there is what everybody regards as the main event, which the court might or might not address. And that is whether the ban is unconstitutional as uh, discrimination on the basis of religion, uh, because although it is formally only applicable to countries, uh, everybody knows that the history of this ban is it emerges out of then-candidate Trump's call for a uh, total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States back in December 2015. Uh, thanks for another great uh, tee-up for this important case. So. Ilya, let us jump into the constitutional question, and then we can uh, think later about whether it might be decided on narrower grounds. Uh, in Justice Thomas's concurring opinion last June, he uh, and Justices Alito and Gorsuch suggested that a majority of the court was ready to reject the constitutional claim. Can you explain what you think they had in mind, whether they were correct, at, uh, and, and, and whether you think the constitutional claim is persuasive or not? I don't think too many on the court, if any, are chomping at the bit to decide the constitutional claim. And it's odd, by the way, to me that it resounds in the Establishment Clause rather than in religious discrimination under the Free Exercise Clause. Um, and, and that's because if you go down this path and the way that the Fourth Circuit came out with its opinion, which I thought was a serious judicial malpractice in the way that it just um, willy-nilly characterized uh, animus and what some academics have called the forever taint, that is certain statements by candidate Trump means that forever he can't act uh, with regard, I suppose, to Muslim countries or maybe Mexico as well in trade deals. Uh, who knows when the same exact actions might may well be legal if uh, done by President Pence or a President Hillary Clinton or, or anyone else who didn't make those sorts of statements. I think that's an odd way of conducting the law. I mean, this is one area where I think the Ninth Circuit, as Mike described, which took a statutory interpretation view and really grappled with the tension between broad discretion in the executive to grant visas and entry conditions and what have you versus uh, exceptions for national security and those sorts of issues. I think ultimately, uh, if the court does decide on the merits, and that's uh, an open question, uh, I think uh, John Roberts certainly does not want to be seen as either second-guessing the executive on national security or uh, ratifying the Trump agenda. Uh, and when we'll be trying to uh, find a way to get rid of this case on either mootness or standing or uh, some other type of, of technical ground. But uh, I think if this goes to the merits, there's a much greater chance that the court will, will do the dry statutory interpretation uh, or maybe further uh, rewrite the stay uh, or the, the injunction as they did with the stay uh, rather than uh, getting into these uh, more controversial and certainly more politically heated uh, constitutional issues. And I should say, Jeff, that um, uh, while I did not file a brief in this case, my immigration policy colleagues at Cato uh, did. Uh, I advised them to do this. And it's, it's really a Brandeis brief saying that the, the underlying facts don't justify a policy of this kind, uh, which, which I think I agree with, uh, but I don't think it necessarily says one thing or another on the law. But anyway, the way the, the briefing schedules uh, uh, turned out, they uh, uh, they filed that. Uh, and uh, one other point to make, uh, 
uh, Mike, and I think you mentioned Jeff Wall, the acting solicitor general, my law school classmate as it happens. He is no longer the acting solicitor general. As we record this on the afternoon of uh, September 19th, Noel Francisco has just finally, eight months into the administration, been confirmed as the solicitor general. And uh, if you'll recall, he actually handled the very early stages in the district court of this litigation. So I think he'll be back at the podium that first week of October. I should have checked my Twitter feed. <laughs> we, well, you're podcasting, and thank you for your restraint. Uh, and Ilya, thank you for uh, the Cato's Brandeis brief. The more Brandeis briefs, uh, the more happiness in the world. And Because the more books of yours uh, will be sold? <laughs> no, no, no. It's already in paperback, so there's no need to sell more copies. Uh, Mike, help, <laughs> help our listeners understand the constitutional claim. Why is it that the Establishment Clause should prevent the government from discriminating on the basis of religious animus, especially for... Uh, for refugees abroad. So basically give us the arguments on both sides and, and then tell us what you find more persuasive. Sure. So I think Ilya has sort of laid out the basic argument uh, against finding that there is uh, discrimination that taints the order here, right? The idea is that in general, the reason why, uh, in, in general, the courts defer to the political branches with respect to immigration, um, that's also true with respect to national security. Here you have Congress delegating at least some power to the president to make these sorts of broad judgments. Uh, and therefore, in the ordinary course, one would expect uh, the courts not to closely scrutinize a uh, decision with respect to admissibility. Um, let me push back on that a little bit in uh, two ways. First, just by noting what we've already noted, which is there is a statutory argument here that Congress did not delegate this power to the president. And so that whatever uh, deference the courts ordinarily give to the political branches under the so-called plenary power doctrine is not in play here because it's not Congress that's acting, it's just the president, possibly uh, ultra virus. But let's put that aside. With respect to the, uh, the sort of conjuries of constitutional provisions, we really have um, uh, three. Uh, you've got free exercise, you've got establishment, and you've got the equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause, which limits the federal government. All three of those provisions include a prohibition on religious discrimination. None of them says so quite expressly, but the Establishment Clause probably comes the closest in that at the at a bare minimum, the original understanding of the Establishment Clause was that what it forbade, at least at the federal level, was the preference for one sect over another. And so here the idea is that one sect, namely Muslims, are being disadvantaged relative to uh, other religions. Now, of course, the law doesn't expressly say that. And as Ilya points out, that's a worry. Does that mean that the law is forever tainted? But I would note that that's a worry that uh, the court has long ago decided is worth uh, uh, overcoming because at, you know, at least since a case, uh, the Arlington Heights case, it's been a feature of equal protection doctrine and other doctrines that incorporate an equality component that a, an otherwise valid uh, government action can be invalid in virtue of an illicit motive. And certainly religious discrimination is an invalid motive. We see that, we've seen that with respect to sexual orientation from this court. Uh, you saw it with respect to uh, race in earlier cases. I have no doubt that the court believes that with respect to religion uh, as well. And so, yes, it's true that, you know, President Obama or President Bush or a hypothetical President Hillary Clinton probably could have gotten away with something like this, although not exactly this necessarily. Uh, but that's different because here you do have evidence of illicit intent. Uh, and the question is, well, when could they do something like this? The answer is not now, maybe at some future point. But that's a criticism, as I say, of all subjective motive tests. And that ship has sailed. Uh Thanks uh, for that. Ilya, as Mike puts it that way, um, why doesn't the Establishment Clause combined with the Due Process and Free Exercise Clause prohibit favoring one sect over another? And, and if they do, then is this just a question of evidence and whether the tweets count or not? It might be a question of evidence in the trial court, but... Um you know the, the way that the way that the the jurisprudence has piled up uh, the Kleindienst case uh, and another one um, 
Uh, once the once the executive has made out a prima facie uh, a facial claim of why it's doing something for national security reasons, courts simply don't go beyond the four squares of that. Uh, and this is a this tweeting and and kind of uh, inflammatory rhetoric, I suppose, is uh, uh, very different uh, than what we've had uh, in the past. Um, I think Kate Shaw, who I don't know if she's on your uh, uh, advisory board or whatnot uh, from um, Cardozo Law School is is writing about the effect of presidential uh, out of court statements and tweets and other things uh, on how courts need to deal with this. But that's certainly a uh, not not a legal issue per se of of first impression, but kind of a an atmospheric issue, I, I suppose. Um, but again, given that there are so many ways of deciding this case before getting. Uh, to that uh, novel ground, I think the court will take uh, one of the escape hatches available. Great. Uh, well, let us now turn to the partisan gerrymandering case, or I guess I have to call it gerrymandering in honor of Elbridge Gerry and Constitution Day. Um, many uh, consider this the most important case about gerrymandering uh, that this court will have heard. Mike, tell us about the constitutional arguments, tell us about the efficiency gap, and tell us about how it was that in Wisconsin in November 2012, Republicans won 47 percent of the votes, but 60 percent of the seats in the assembly. Okay, so to get to this, I think we need to begin by going back to 2004, when the Supreme Court decided a case called uh, Veith against Jubilee. Um, and, uh, in that case, the court in an opinion by justice Scalia said that a challenge to a partisan gerrymander, I'll call it, I suppose, <laughs> it's pedantic, um, uh, but, uh, constitutional. right. That, uh, such a, that's, that such a challenge is a non-justiciable political question. Um, and to use the, uh, technical language, uh, there are not judicially discoverable and manageable standards by which to determine what counts as too partisan a set of line drawing. Now, crucially, um, Justice Kennedy concurred in the judgment in that case, and he said that he agrees that um, challenges to partisan Gary or gerrymandering uh, are not currently justiciable because we haven't yet discovered judicially manageable standards, but I don't want to rule out the possibility that someday someone might discover such standards. Fast forward to the present, and um, there was a challenge to the apportionment of seats in Wisconsin, uh, in which the plaintiff said, and the three-judge district court agreed, that uh, Lo and behold, there is a uh, a manageable standard. It is the efficiency gap. Um, the efficiency gap is a measure of the difference between the relative percentages of wasted voters of the two parties, taking into account their proportion in the population. Now you say, well, what is a wasted voter? Uh, a voter is wasted. Um, when he or she has been subjected to cracking or packing. Uh, so here's an example of the, I'll give examples of each of those. So um, if you control the state legislature and thus the districting process, one thing you might do with respect to voters for the other party is to try to crack up large distributions of them. So if there's a district where if you drew a kind of uh geographically natural unit, they would control it. You crack them by splitting them into different units in which they are uh, in the minority. Another thing you can do is you can pack them. If you've got, uh, if you know that uh, there are a lot of the voters who are going to vote for the wrong party, well, you pack them all into one, one or two or small number of districts, and thus uh, you ensure that you have a majority in the remaining districts. Now, cracking and packing have become a sort of dark art uh, in recent years as uh, state legislators aided by experts with very sophisticated computer software are able to draw maps such that they can maximize the uh, number of seats that they're going to win and minimize the number of seats that their opponents are going to win. Uh, the question in the case is whether this measure, the efficiency gap, 
is sufficiently determinate uh, and appropriate as a constitutional interpretation for the court to say that uh, it is no longer a political question and they can rely on it to adjudicate the case. Thank you for that. Uh, we the people listeners, we can learn even more about the efficiency gap uh, in a few weeks when Nick Stephanopoulos, the scholar who came up with the efficiency gap, comes to the National Constitution Center to discuss it in a great panel about this case. Uh, Ilya, uh, as Mike has described it, Justice Kennedy said in the Veith case, come back to me if you come up with some manageable standard for judging partisan, I'll just call it gerrymandering, uh, in uh, here, uh, Nick Stephanopoulos and Eric McGee have come up with this uh, formula for looking at statewide patterns of uh, results and whether or not the party's votes are wasted. And that might account for dramatic cases like this where a party can win a minority of seats and a majority of the vote. Uh, do you, do you uh, think that this can be plausibly rooted in the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, which after all was originally intended not to apply to political rights at all, but only to civil or social rights, and uh, what would a principled basis for adopting the efficiency gap be, and and do you think the court should adopt it? Well, let me answer that question this way. I I think that it presents a manageable standard, but not a constitutional one. In other words, I am, you know, the the kind of political science uh, scientist in me, you know, dating back to my college and and grad school days before law school, finds this all fascinating. And as a matter of, uh, I guess, political uh, application, I think it would be great if just some deus ex machina computer could draw all this stuff everywhere, although it's complicated uh, in our country because of the Voting Rights Act and uh, you know, certain prohibitions on diluting uh, the, the power of racial minorities once they have achieved a certain amount of it. It kind of complicates the way that you draw these things. Um, and, you know, kind of uh, if, if, we were, if we were playing on a, uh, a blank slate, um, then the, sure, the, the best practice might, might well be to ensure competitiveness by uh, managing the efficiency gap and what have you. But at the end of the day, what this, even though it's kind of an elegant uh, uh, theory, what the challengers are asking here is to have the Supreme Court draw a line that says effectively, oh, well, 10% efficiency gap, that's too much. But 8%, that's okay. Uh, that, that, that doesn't sound like a, um, a constitutional standard to me. That sounds like a political science standard. And it's, and it's different than saying, you know, a de minimis violation is okay. This is not about de minimis versus significant. This is about, you know, you can, you can have certain amount of partisan gerrymandering, uh, but not too much. Uh, I, I really don't know if there's five votes on the court for doing that, uh, Last time uh, that, that a case like this came up in 2004 out of Pennsylvania, it was a 4-1-4 with Justice Kennedy not closing the door on partisan gerrymandering claims, but uh, not uh, adopting uh, the theory there. And it's kind of reminiscent of uh, racial preferences in education, where Kennedy f- forever uh, left the door open without ruling for a particular program, affirmative action program that uses racial preferences, until uh, last year uh, when, when he finally did a the UT Austin had. Could this be that? I, I just don't know. The thing is, just like with the travel ban, there are certain procedural off-ramps before the court even gets to that. That is, for example, this is a challenge to an entire state districting map. Never has the Supreme Court accepted a challenge on uh, to, to voting rights or districting that's not based on a particular district. That is, you're using too much or too little race in one district, or you're doing this or that wrong. Uh, not kind of this systemic, uh, global, you know, uh, 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 using sophisticated software for the whole state uh, uh, that's uh, improper. Uh, is uh, um, did, did the district court simply not, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the court will just uh, uh, vacate this standard, uh, vacate the, the ruling and, and tell the district court to go back and look harder at one thing or another rather than issuing a definitive merits ruling that the efficiency gap uh, is the way to go. Again, this is a very touchy issue and it doesn't necessarily benefit one party or another. I mean, here in this case out of Wisconsin, sure, it's the Republicans that were drawing the maps. But whenever uh, a party gets a majority in both uh, House, state houses and the governor's office after a uh, census when they're doing districting, they're going to draw lines to in, in their favor. That's in the nature of, 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 of politicians. So uh, I think the court recognizes that and is going to be very uh, hesitant to, to promote some sort of broad sweeping standard that will 
uh, you know, change the face of elections as we know it going forward. I, I can't resist one more beat on this because I want to learn more. Mike, you know, channel Justice Kennedy. That's your job uh, today. He asked for a standard. Here's a clear one. Will he go for it? And more broadly, tell the listeners, what is the constitutional injury of gerrymandering? We had a great NCC debate where uh, Professor McCarty of Princeton basically convinced the audience that gerrymandering is not responsible for more polarization. Uh, polarization is caused by the big sort, by the fact that red and blue America live in different places, and that's we're going to draw voting districts, and they're going to be mostly red and mostly blue. Uh, it may be responsible for a disproportionate uh, victory, for exaggerating the strength of the party that's drawing the seats, but it's not polarization. What, what, why should we be concerned about partisan gerrymandering from a constitutional perspective, and, and might Justice Kennedy go for the efficiency gap? Uh, so I think you can say that even if uh, partisan gerrymandering is not primarily responsible for uh, political polarization, it nonetheless harms voters to be placed in districts based on criteria that are designed to ensure that they're unable to have real electoral power, right? One can ask the same thing about the voters who challenge the uh, uh, majority-minority districts on the basis of the Equal Protection Clause. We're not talking now about minority voters who have had their voting strength diluted, but uh, the cases that say that there is a limit to how much race can be taken into account. So the the injury, again, right, of course, in some sense, no one is ever injured by an electoral map uh, or anything regarding voting because it's almost never the case that one single vote changes an election. So it's got to be something about what the the state is doing to you uh, symbolically by putting you in these in these districts. Um, I guess I would say, with respect to uh, Justice Kennedy, to my mind, the reason that he uh, didn't join Justice Scalia in the Veith case is that he is very much um, sort of a, a student of the court's relatively recent history. That is to say, the last you know seventy years or so. And if you think back to the the Warren Court, right um, at the time the most controversial decisions of the Warren court were uh, Baker against Carr and Reynolds against Sims, the cases that first found that there was justiciability and then uh, found for the plaintiffs who were challenging malapportionment, that is to say districts that were not drawn according to uh, equal population principles. Uh, and at the time, people say, well, that principle doesn't appear in the Constitution, and that's your Justice Frankfurter uh, and, and uh, later Justice Harlan objected that this was entering the political thicket. Uh, and uh, Warren plowed on ahead, uh, I think, for reasons that have been vindicated, right? That is to say, the court's legitimacy is at greatest risk when it's standing against the democratic process. But uh, as John Hart Ely taught us, right, it's got the greatest legitimacy when it's using the power of judicial review not to strike down the outputs of the democratic process, but to ensure that the democratic process actually is democratic. And while partisan gerrymandering might not be the worst threat to basic democratic principles, it does seem to offend some notion of uh, fair play. So I do think that that will appeal to Justice Kennedy, which is not to say that I'm predicting he will necessarily vote to find it justiciable and with the plaintiffs. Thanks so much for that. Um, all right, well, let us turn, uh, if we may, to the Carpenter case, which, which could be the most exciting and important case involving electronic privacy of this century. Uh, we are going to discuss it at a great town hall in Washington, D.C. on October 26th. Uh, 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 Ilya, tell us about this case in which the police used locational cell phone data to track a suspect's movements for 127 days, nearly five months. Uh, as it happens, the suspect had been stealing cell phones, and they, they caught him based on these uh, cell phone records. And the question is whether the police can reconstruct our movements in public for nearly five months without a valid judicial warrant. Uh, what is the Fourth Amendment uh, issue in this case, and uh, how do you think the justices will rule? This is another case in which I did file a brief supporting the defendant, supporting Mr. Carpenter. Um, 
this is not uh, uh, the live tracking, like a GPS-style tracking, like was that issue a few years ago in the Jones case, where the court unanimously struck down the warrantless attachment of a GPS device onto a car so they could uh, follow uh, a suspect uh, on, on various grounds. They weren't agreed on, on, on why exactly, but they were unanimous that that violated the Fourth Amendment. Here, this is historical data, that is, all of us uh, are walking around uh, with this powerful computer in our pockets or handbags that are constantly pinging off cell towers, uh, which uh, information about uh, which towers uh, is being recorded and stored uh, by our cell phone providers, your Verizon and T-Mobile and Sprint and all the rest. Uh, and here, the, as you said, the police uh, issued a subpoena a request, basically a glorified request of the cell phone provider saying, we have reason to believe this person is committing crime. Uh, please give us his historical cell data ref uh, records, you know, the, uh, the, the, the geopositioning of the towers where he, his phones were, uh, were pinging. Uh, and the question is, why didn't they get a warrant? Why shouldn't they get a warrant? And under what theory? And this uh, could force the court to reevaluate some very longstanding uh, Fourth Amendment doctrine, that is, regarding uh, the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. The governing doctrine in this area from 1967, celebrating 50 years now, uh, in the Katz case, K-A-T-Z, uh, regards the reasonable expectation of privacy. That is, if, if, if you have gone somewhere and you reasonably expect to be, th that you're communications are going to be private from the government, then the government needs a warrant to be able to wiretap you or, or otherwise acquire those communications. Um, well, uh, do people know that, uh, do reasonable people know that all of their cell phone pinging uh, location data uh, is uh, in the hands of a third party being recorded and stored? Um, even if they do, uh, is, that, uh, is that enough? Because you can't exactly uh, function without uh, being able to, you know, no professional can go around without a smartphone these days. You know, some are still trying there, but, you know, 98% of professionals say, uh, uh, which the justices can certainly identify with, uh, have these uh, uh, devices. So maybe the reasonable expectation of privacy or the reasonable expectation that this information isn't going to a third party isn't the way to look at it, which brings in the, what's called the third party doctrine from a case in 1979 called Smith versus Maryland that says that when you turn over certain information or items to a third party, you no longer have that privacy interest in it and the government can look through it. Uh, like if you leave trash on the curb, for example, that's thrown out, you no longer have a possessory interest, the government can look uh, without a warrant. So both the reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine and the third party doctrine uh, are ripe for review. Uh, the, the new theory that Cato uh, is proposing, along with the Competitive Enterprise Institute, uh, my former colleague Jim Harper, who's now a vice president at CEI, uh, has come up with, uh, for over several years, a, a theory that if you, if you, the individual, have taken certain steps to protect your data, your information, uh, both physically and legally, for example, all of us have contracts with our cell phone providers saying they can't willy-nilly turn over your information. Um, if we've gone through these legal and digital and physical steps, then the government needs a very good reason, uh, essentially a warrant. Uh, and why isn't that the way that we should conceive of these things in the digital age? There, there's some parallel, actually, to how the doctrine previously was changed. Uh, Katz itself, 50 years ago, overturned a case from the late 1920s called Olmsted, which allowed the government to wiretap without a warrant because after all the court reasoned, when you talk on the phone, that uh, those phone uh, uh, voice signals are going through wires that are outside your home. And you don't uh, have a privacy interest in what goes on outside your home, even if it's wires. Well, the court uh, reversed that in cats and uh, either narrowly or broadly, I think uh, we will see a change uh, in doctrine here in this case in Carpenter. Great, well you've shown us why this is such an exciting case. I had a remarkable experience this summer talking about the case in Chautauqua, New York, and talking about whether the court would reconsider Smith v. Maryland, the case that Ilya just mentioned. And a gentleman raised his hand in the front row and said, I argued Smith v. Maryland. He was the lawyer who oh. argued it in 79. And he said he did not think the Smith case should apply 
to in in the GPS tracking case because uh, cell phone data could reveal so much more information than the bank records that were at issue in Smith. Mike, here's here's a big question, and it's it's obviously a hard one to answer. In the previous cases involving electronic surveillance, Riley, the cell phone case where the court unanimously said you can't search someone's cell phone on arrest without a warrant, and Jones, the GPS case where the court unanimously, but for different reasons, said you can't track someone's movements with a physical GPS device. They didn't reconsider Smith v. Maryland or Katz. They, they claimed to be applying previous doctrine. Do you think they will reconsider Katz or Smith v. Maryland? And if so, what alternative do you think they will adopt and should adopt? So first I would say that, you know, with respect to Katz, uh, there, there were some justices on the court who were, uh, if not reconsidering Katz, reconceptualizing Katz as turning, as a kind of backup principle but making property the primary interest. And um, in the the GPS case, there is a very interesting uh, debate between uh, Justice Scalia, who wanted the physical invasion to be the thing that they focused on, the attachment of the GPS to the vehicle, uh, versus Justice Alito, who was taking a much more uh, functional approach. That is, it's about what the government is learning. Uh, So to the extent that there is wiggle room there, I do hope that they will not reconsider cats, but will expand cats and go in the direction that Justice Alito wanted to go, uh, which is to say what we really care about here is how much uh, is the government learning about the uh, the individual. Now, I will say one word. I mean, I, I basically agree with uh, uh, Ilya normatively in this case. I will say one way in which this case is a little harder than one might at first think is that cell phone uh, tower data are not quite as precise as GPS data. So the the government argues in this case, well, this is not like we can say, aha, this person uh, went to this particular house and then had, uh, because they're having an affair with that person, or they went to the library because they're taking out this book or that, that or the other thing. And so that in that sense, it, uh, cell phone tower data don't pose quite the same threat to uh, privacy as do does GPS monitoring. Uh, on the other hand, it obviously uh, is very informative because it was able uh, to en- enable, it did enable the successful uh, prosecution uh, of the, this guy. Um, uh, so I guess my answer to your question is that uh, insofar as the court comes up with a new framework, I hope they do two things. One is I would love to see the repudiation of the third party doctrine, which has always struck me as ridiculous. And a, a very good uh, account of why is a 2002 Law Review article uh, by Sherry Kolb, whom I should say, uh, who I should say is a, in full disclosure is my my wife, uh, but it's an article in the Stanford Law Review on uh, what's wrong with, among other things, the third party doctrine. And the short answer is that uh, what, what's wrong with it is turning over information to your uh, cell phone provider or your bank or any other uh, party with whom you do business is not the same thing as turning it over to the government, much less the entire world. The second thing I'll say is what I hope that they replace uh, the existing test with is if they are going to p- replace it is a, a real focus on what has sometimes been called law abiding privacy. That is, uh, what is it going to take to protect people, uh, who have private information, the sort of things that you've written about very eloquently that they just want to keep private, uh, not because they're hiding criminality, but because it's nobody's business. Um, I think that's what's at the core of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and so it would be, I think it would be uh, quite desirable if the court steps back and asks that as a matter of first principle. Thanks very much for that. Uh, well, we should wrap up to keep things within the hour, but um, you were so helpful, Mike, in giving uh, our listeners homework. I want to do the same thing or just suggested reading because this is a really important term, we the people listeners, and we all have to really work hard to be fully prepared and keep our minds open in order to educate ourselves about this case. So in in Mike's spirit, I'll also recommend the great project that the Constitution Center did with Microsoft last year to propose alternatives to the third party doctrine. And if you Google National Constitution Center and Microsoft Project on Privacy and Technology, you'll find white papers by scholars of very different perspectives proposing alternatives to the third-party doctrine. So the the closing statements are simply requests for further suggested reading. Ilya, uh, what articles or, or books or sources would you, uh, it's pick three or four, would you suggest to our listeners so that they can best educate themselves uh, to follow this uh, extremely important Supreme Court term? 
Well, I'm glad you asked. The Cato Supreme Court review, well, they're going to have to wait until the uh, a year from now exactly uh, for the, the, the cases about the, the, the description of the, of the cases this term. But um, I follow SCOTUS blog for day to day, and I follow the Volok conspiracy, and I follow the, the Take Care blog, and I follow concurring opinions. These are all law blogs. If you really want to get into the the legal nerdery, if, if, if you will, um, uh, they, they provide a full gamut of, of analysis on lots of cases from different perspectives. Uh, you know, my, my blogging at, at Cato, uh, of course, will give you my perspective. Uh, and uh, the National Constitution Center's blog has a lot of information uh, as well. And quickly, just so I can highlight a couple of other cases, because they're going to grant a lot more cases this term, some of which are also going to be big. The Janus case, J-A-N-U-S, which reprises a case that ended four to four when Justice Scalia died about charging agency fees to non-members of public sector unions, as well as two structural cases to the Consumer Finance Protection Board and the use of administrative law judges by the Securities and Exchange Commission. That last one is called the Lucia Corporation case. Anyway, just to name check them so listeners can, uh, if if and when they're, they're granted, you can know that those are gonna be biggies. Thanks so much for that, Mike. Last word to you. Final suggested reading for our listeners to follow the cases and also any cases that you are watching on the docket that the court may grant. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm going to plug my own blog, Dorf on Law. A lot of my blog posts get republished on Take Care, which uh, Ilya mentioned, and then on Newsweek. But you can get them hot off the presses at dorfonlaw.org. Another great place, is, uh, which I also write for, is Verdict, which is uh, a free uh side of uh, opinion on all sorts of legal issues uh, run by Justia, which is another free uh, website. Um, I'm going to recommend a brief. Uh, It's a brief in the travel ban case, which is an amicus brief of scholars of Mormon history and law uh, that is nominally in support of neither party, uh, but if you, you can't read it and not come away thinking that it's in support of the plaintiffs in the case. And it's a fascinating retelling of the history of anti-Mormon legislation, including with respect to immigration uh, in the 19th century. Uh, And it wasn't just, as I had long assumed, uh, hostility to polygamy that drove this, but uh, actual sort of just flat-out religious bigotry. It's a it's a wonderful brief. Um, it's a it's short, and you can find it on the SCOTUS blog page. If you go to the uh, the travel ban uh, page for for they they list they list the various briefs. Um, finally, I guess cases that I'm watching are there a bunch of cases in the lower courts that could get to the Supreme Court this term that involve the question of whether sexual orientation discrimination and discrimination on the basis of transgender status amount to violations of various statutory prohibitions on sex discrimination, uh, most especially uh, Title VII. Uh, A version of that was up at the court in the Gavin Grimm case last uh, term, but ended up uh, not being decided. It would not surprise me if uh, one or more of the cases presenting that sort of constellation of issues returns this term, uh, and it Certainly, I certainly expect it to return at some point. Thanks so much for that. Uh, in in the same spirit, I'll recommend uh, n- not only the Constitution Center's uh, Constitution Daily blog, which Ilya was kind enough to plug, but also We the People listeners. You know that every week at the Constitution Center here in Philadelphia and around America, we are holding discussions and panels about these cases and constitutional issues on the news. So check out the videos, which... Uh, are online at constitutioncenter.org and our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, which posts the audio. And most of all, read the interactive Constitution. I know that I'm an evangelist for it, but I want you to download it. Pick a constitutional clause at issue in the cases we've been discussing. You've heard about the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment, for example. Read the essays by the scholars on both sides, the common statement and the separate statements and make up your own mind. It will take a little time, but it's necessary in order to be fully informed and open-minded about these difficult constitutional issues that Ilya and Mike have helped us understand with such clarity, nuance, and intelligence. Ilya, Mike, thank you so much for joining and look forward to having you back lots more during a really exciting Supreme Court term ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Likewise. Thanks, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Ogana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Ogana Etze and Lana Ulrich. 
Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR and sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm and please be sure to rate our podcast on iTunes and other platforms. It helps others learn about our great educational mission. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, on the 230th birthday of the U.S. Constitution, I need to remind you that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity, engagement, and passion for lifelong learning of people around the country like you who are responding and, and, and writing in and, and telling us how much these podcasts mean to you. It, I'm so grateful when you uh, write to me. Please continue to send me your feedback and join the Constitution Center. Go to the website, sign up, get our podcast, get our emails, and become a member of this great national and international community of lifelong learners. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.